All right, well, good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. If you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 822. Our text today records a significant benchmark in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. And we'll see in verse 13 as we begin that this event took place in the district of Caesarea Philippi, which was a largely Gentile city about 25 miles north of Galilee that, was, that really had a history of, of being a, a, a center of pagan worship. And so that's kind of the scene this morning as we open up God's word today. So I'd ask you once again to please stand for the reading of God's word. Let me just read the passage that we want to consider this morning. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So please follow along as, as I read and let us hear the word of God now. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Who is Jesus, and what is he doing? What happens as the gospel is proclaimed? These are all questions that are addressed in this passage of God's word that we're studying today, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And so I want to work our way through this text under three headings, if you're taking notes. Here's the first one. I called it important confession. In verses 13 through 16, we see an important confession. Notice in verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It was a somewhat veiled reference to Daniel chapter 7, where one like the Son of Man is given authority from the Ancient of Days to rule forever. And so Jesus is asking his disciples, Hey guys, what have you been hearing? What, who, who are the crowds saying that I am? Verse 14, they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the disciples say, well, there's, you know, different opinions, Jesus. And they they share probably four of the most popular ones, right? First, John the Baptist. Again, we know he had been extremely popular and his death had brought a shock to many. And and really, remember, it was um, not long after, or excuse me, not long before his death that, that Jesus 
began his public ministry, so there was kind of like this baton passing off to, to John. And so some may have thought that the spirit of John went over to Jesus. And if you remember, not too long ago, we saw that was what Herod was thinking, right? Because he, he is the one that had put John the Baptist to death. And so when he's hearing about Jesus and how popular he is and the mighty works he's doing, he's, he's scared. He's thinking, this is John reincarnated who's come to get me or something, right? He had all these kind of eclectic pagan notions. So that was what some of them thought. that This is John the Baptist reincarnated. Others said Elijah. Now the Jews were fascinated with Elijah. Not only had he been one of the great prophets, but think about what, what was unique about Elijah. He never died, right? Remember? He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so because of that, and then because uh, Malachi in chapters 3 and 4 mentions uh, Elijah as a forerunner to the Messiah. Many people thought, well, Jesus is Elijah. He, so they didn't think he was the Messiah, but he's the, the forerunner to the Messiah. He's, he's someone who's a prophet who's come. He's doing mighty works in God's name. He's paving the way for the promised king to come. Others said, well, no, he's Jeremiah. Now, why would they say that? Well, Jeremiah was another prophet and, and if you look at Jeremiah's ministry, well, he, he often spoke of coming judgment against the religious leaders, and Jeremiah declared the downfall of Judah, and matter of fact, Jeremiah also talked about the, the, the destruction of the temple. And so, you know, they looked at Jesus, and they saw uh, what he was preaching, and they saw the, the, the battles he was having with the, the religious leaders, and, and they said, wow, you know, this is like Jeremiah. Maybe he is Jeremiah, you know, again, some, I guess reincarnated. Others just uh, said, well, he is one of the prophets. So they viewed Jesus as one of the many prophets who had come on the scene of Israel's history declaring God's word to the people. So when you take really all four of those opinions and you you put them all together, you see they all kind of have this common um, denominator of Jesus is a prophet, right? Jesus is some kind of prophet. His words and powerful deeds come from God. He's speaking for God. So people, by and large, thought Jesus was someone who was um, declaring the word of God, but continuing, again, along this line of prophets, just continuing to point the way, point forward to the fact that someday the Messiah is going to come. And so what do you notice about these four opinions? Like, what, what answer do you not see among those four opinions about who Jesus is? Apparently, no one was saying he is the Messiah. No one was uh, affirming definitely he's the Messiah. And so when the disciples are giving these answers, they're, they're saying, well, they, you know, they, they think this, this, and this, but, but that's it, Jesus. No one's saying that you are the Messiah. And so now, you know, we'd, we'd look at those and we'd have to say, okay, well, People recognize something special about Jesus. Those are kind of respectful opinions, but really all those, all those answers, you know, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets, those all reflect an inadequate view of Jesus, right? It's, they're not really noticing or recognizing who he truly is. Apparently the crowds, by and large, just saw Jesus as another prophet, not the one who was actually bringing salvation, and so the disciples told Jesus who the crowds think he is, but really Jesus asked that question to set up the, the question he really wanted to get to here in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? 
The you there in the Greek is plural. It's in the emphatic position. So it's like Jesus saying, okay, yeah, you answered that question. But now, who do you guys, you, you disciples right here, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking the disciples what they believe about him. And so this is really, a, a, again, kind of a critical point in the, the relationship here, right? I mean, Jesus has spent over a year with these guys. They've, the, the, these disciples have, have had the privilege of spending basically 24-7 with Jesus for over a year now. They've seen his public miracles. They've heard his authoritative teaching. They've also received private instruction. They've been able to observe him and interact with him many times. And so Jesus is saying, really he's saying he wants to know where they're at with this. Where are you at in your understanding? You've told me the crowd's opinion, but what do you guys believe about me? And verse 16 shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Simon Peter's the one to speak up, right? Um, He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, we often see Peter speak up. He's like, kind of like the spokesman for the disciples, but he's, he affirms, he's, he confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ. We believe that you are the Messiah, right? Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. You are the one of whom the prophets spoke. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the promised King sent by God to deliver his people and establish his righteous and eternal kingdom. Peter confessed that to Jesus. This was a huge moment, right? And, and we, when we look at the, how their relationship begins, granted, the disciples, they you know, were called to follow Jesus and They knew he was a rabbi, so they were following him. And you read the Gospel of John especially, and you see that even at the beginning, they were were hopeful. They were wondering, is this the Messiah, right? But now, here they are. They're no longer wondering about that. Their understanding has grown. Yes, they still have more to learn about Jesus' mission as the Messiah. We'll see that um, next week, Lord willing. But here they've come to a point where they affirm that Jesus is the promised Messiah, And so Peter, and again, I assume speaking for the other disciples, realizes, no, Jesus is not just one of many prophets. He is the prophet. He is the king. He's the promised one. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. Notice Peter not only confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but he adds, Jesus is the son of the living God. Peter understood that David's son is also David's Lord. Yes, in in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David and promised that one of his sons would reign forever. And and, and as the prophets declared that, and as time passed, the Jews came to understand, man, for this son to reign forever, he's going to need to be a divine figure. And again, I don't know that they had that all um, figured out. But Peter declares, you are the son of the living God. Peter understood there was, that Jesus was not merely a man, that he was also divine, that he is the unique son of the true God, the living God. Not the dead gods, that the false gods that were worshipped there in Caesarea Philippi, but Jesus is the son of the living God. And again, when we read the Gospels, we have to understand just this progression of understanding 
that the disciples experience, right? So uh, even at this point, I'm not saying that Peter had everything about the incarnation figured out, right? But yet he knew that Jesus was no mere man. He knew that he was the son of the living God. And so this is an important confession, right? I mean, this is really, um, again, a benchmark. When you read through the Gospels, you, you see that um, this is a real turning point in, in Jesus' ministry. It's kind of like, all right, now you guys get it. Now we're going to focus on my mission, uh, why I came. I want you to understand what kind of Messiah I've come to be. And, and then he really starts heading to Jerusalem to fulfill that. So this is a real uh, important point in, in the story here. So Peter's made this important confession He's declared that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter, and again, along with the disciples, they recognized that in Jesus, just as we sang about this morning, God had come to deliver his people and rule in righteousness. So now in verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter's confession. And he, by, you, you notice he basically affirms it. He's basically saying, you're right, Peter, but the... He shifts the focus to this. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that's my second heading now. A gracious revelation. We saw the important confession in verses 13 through 16. Now in verse 17, we want to focus on gracious revelation. Jesus affirms Peter's confession, but notice Jesus doesn't say, good job, Peter, you figured it out, (laughs) right? He doesn't say that. No, rather, he says, you, he doesn't say, Peter, you are so wise that you figured that you put all this together. Instead, he says, Peter, you are so blessed. Blessed are you, Simon. You are blessed. Why? Because my father has revealed this to you. Jesus knew that the disciples didn't figure this out on their own. They didn't figure out who Jesus was just on their own intelligence or their own even uh, godliness, let's say. No, he knew that the, the only way they could affirm this, the only way they believed this was because God had graciously worked in the disciples' hearts. God had graciously opened their eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. And again, what a contrast, right? I mean, we've seen for several times the religious leaders rejecting Jesus. You know, they think he's a fraud. They think he's blaspheming. Now we've heard the reports, by and large, of the crowds, right? And and all their views fall short. But here's the disciples. They believe, they understand the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why? Because God had revealed it to them. God had graciously opened their eyes, showing them that, in fact, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So again, it's, a, it's really a, kind of a dramatic scene, isn't it? You know, when Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And, and then Peter gives that truthful confession. And so, you know, you can't help but, but study a text like that and, and, and we need to apply it to ourselves, right? 
If Jesus were to ask us that, who do you say that I am? How would you answer? And that's really a question each of us needs to answer. Because it's all about Jesus. There's no more important person. And we're all going to stand before him someday. And so we need to answer that question. Who do we say, who do we believe that Jesus is? We each must answer that question for ourselves. And so I I ask you, can you say from your heart that Jesus is the king? Can you say along with Peter, yes, you are the Christ, the king. Yes, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. Yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. Can you say that? That Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. I pray that each of us believes that. I pray that each of us can affirm that. And if you can say that, if you believe that from your heart, then what should your response be? If, if, if this morning, as I'm asking those questions, you're saying, yes, that's what I believe. Yes, I know that Jesus is king. Yes, I know that he's the son of God. Yes, I, I know that he died and rose again. I know that he's my savior and Lord. What should your next response be? Pat yourself on the back, right? No. Praise God, right? Praise God that you believe that. Because just like Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was God himself who revealed that. God has graciously opened your eyes to the truth. If you, can, uh, if you affirm that, if you confess that today, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, God has given you that faith. And that means that you're saved. That means your sins are forgiven. That means you have eternal life. That means you'll be with Jesus forever in glory. And so we should rejoice and praise God if we can confess that today. Praise God for his grace. And again, I think we could put each one of us who can confess that, every Christian here today, we could insert our name. Blessed are you, Jathan, that you can say that. Because my Father has revealed that to you. Oh, Christians, we are so blessed. We are blessed that God has intersected our lives with his word, with the truth of the gospel. We are blessed that the Spirit has opened our eyes and shown into our hearts the glory of who Christ is. We are blessed that God has given us faith to embrace his Son as Lord and Savior. We're blessed. We are blessed. Like the crowds we once had wrong views of Jesus. Like the crowds, we once had inadequate views of who Jesus is, but God in his mercy and grace has revealed the truth to us. And so we who believe in Christ are so blessed. And I hope that's one of the the real takeaways from the sermon today, that we don't believe Because we're so smart, right? And as we look out and we see others, may we have family and friends that don't believe in Jesus. It's not that we're smarter than them. It's not that we're, you know, by nature holier than them. It's not that we're more deserving than them. No. It's all because of God's grace.
We believe because God chose to be gracious. Again, just to drive the point home, you and I have the joy of eternal life. You and I have the peace of being reconciled to God because God chose to be gracious, because God sent his son and then he revealed um, to us who Jesus is. He showed us who Christ is. God gave us the faith and united us to Christ. And so, loved ones, let us be humble. Christians, let's be humble, a humble people. Let us be a thankful people, right? So thankful for God's grace. God has been so good to us. Now again, back to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you can't say from your heart, I mean, yeah, maybe you know the, as we say, the Sunday school answer, right? Maybe you know the Bible, but you can't personally say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I know that he is my personal Savior. If you can't say that, then pray for God to open your eyes. Pray. Prayerfully read God's word. Prayerfully search the scriptures and ask God, please show me the truth about Jesus. Please drive that that home to me. Because a, a wrong answer leads you to hell. An inadequate view of Christ. If you die that way, you'll be separated from God forever. And so we desperately need to to affirm the truth about Jesus. We need to, by faith, embrace Him as our Lord and Savior. So Peter has given... An important confession which was enabled by God's gracious revelation. And now then the third and final heading we see beginning in verse 18. A powerful pro- uh, proclamation. Powerful proclamation. In verses 18 through 20. I have that all under this last heading. Powerful proclamation. Je- look at what Jesus says next to Peter in verse 18. He's told him how blessed he is because the Father revealed it to him. And now verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the you is singular. He's he's honing in. He's speaking specifically to Peter. Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. Why? Because Peter comes from the Greek word meaning rock. So Jesus is using a play on words here. He's saying, after Peter's important confession of who Jesus is, Jesus says, yes, your name is rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, this verse has been misinterpreted, and so I want to clarify it. Okay, Roman Catholics have misused this verse to argue that Peter was the first pope. And then they also say now there's, a, there's this line of succession of popes uh, in Rome, and even to this present day, right? And, and each one is someone who speaks authoritatively and infallibly uh, for Christ. And that's not biblical. That's not, there's nothing in this text about uh, uh, successors to Peter here. Okay, so that's not what verse 18 is saying. And so really, I think in, in reaction to that view, Protestants have said the rock is Peter's confession of Christ. 
All right? I mean, he just made this important confession. And so they, they hone in on that and they say, this is what the rock is. Jesus is saying, on that confession, I will build my church. And, and really, that's closer to, to the biblical uh, meaning here. But that's not exactly right. That is kind of the, again, it's closer to the intended meaning. But the problem is that the flow of the sentence and even the Greek itself points to Peter as the rock. Okay? So we need to understand that. Yes, what Jesus is saying is Peter in his historical role is the rock upon which Christ will build his church. And here's what I want you to get. It's Peter's role of proclaiming Christ. It's Peter's role of proclaiming the gospel that will be the rock upon which Christ will build his church. Okay? Peter's an apostle. After Jesus dies on the cross and rises again and sends the Holy Spirit, Peter and the other apostles will have the privilege, they'll have the authority and the power of proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the Bible, we see it played out in Acts. We see it talked about in Galatians 2 that Peter was an apostle to the Jews. And that, again, like we saw a couple weeks ago, really salvation began with the Jews and then it spread out through the Gentiles. The church started with the Jews there. The upper room, right? Acts 2. And so Peter plays this foundational role as, as like the first of the apostles proclaiming the gospel. So Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Ephesians 2.20 says that it's upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that Jesus is building his church. And so that's what he's saying here. Peter, you are blessed. You're blessed to understand this, to believe it. And I'm gonna, you're also blessed in the fact that I'm going to use you um, to, to get this whole thing started. <laughs> right? I'm going to use you to, to, to build my church. I'm going to use you to proclaim the gospel. Speaking of the word church, here in Matthew 16, 18, this is the first time we see the word church in Matthew's gospel. It's only used one other time, and that'll be in chapter 18. Now, I want you to see something else that's really cool in this verse, okay? Actually, there's a lot of neat things in this verse. Church is the Greek word ekklesia. It means called out ones. All right, so as we often say, church is not the building, right? Church is the people, okay? Church is the people of God. It's those who've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, those who have believed in Christ. Again, we see that taught throughout Scripture. Like, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he describes the church as this holy temple uh, unto the Lord that's made up of living stones, right? It's the people. So here Jesus says, on this rock of Peter proclaiming the gospel, Jesus says, I will build my church, my ecclesia. Now, just hang with me. Ecclesia is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? Which is what the, the Jews of that day would have been using to describe the assembly of the people of God. So in the Old Testament, right, whenever it was talking about the nation of Israel, when it was talking about the people of God... When, you're, when they were using the Greek version of that, it was using ekklesia. Okay? So that's what would have come to the Jews' minds when they heard, uh, the Jews of Jesus' day, when they heard the term ekklesia. Oh, that's, that's us, the Jews would say. That's us. We're the people of God. 
And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this gospel, you proclaiming the gospel, I'm going to build my ecclesia. And in the Greek, the, the word my is emphasized. It's like Jesus saying, Jesus is saying here, I'm reconstituting the, who are the people of God. <laughs> I'm doing a new thing now. No longer are the people of God, the people of God by, by, by um, heritage, no longer are the people of God, the people of God by, by um, ethnicity because you're Jewish. No, my people of God are the ones that I've called to myself through faith in me, through faith in the gospel. So it's, it's again, this is such a, a turning point here in so many ways, right? As Jesus has already previewed through, through uh, his ministry that we studied a couple of weeks ago there in the area of Tyre and Sidon, remember that the church, the, the new people of God is going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? So no longer is the people of God going to be just those who were born Jewish. No, the people of God is going to be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, those who have trusted in Christ. And so Jesus is saying, this is what I'm doing now. I'm building a new people of God. And it's going to be through you guys proclaiming the gospel. That's what he's saying. And now he says something else about the, the church here. All right? Notice what he says. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, let me say this before I get into that. One more thing about the, the people of God. Remember I said it's made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation who by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's, it's through, it's on the rock of the apostles proclaiming the gospel. Well, guess what we have in the word of God? What is the word of God? What is the New Testament specifically? It's, it's the apostolic teaching of, about Christ. It's by God's grace and, and by its inspiration of, of Scripture, God breathed out. It's the apostles recording how they proclaimed Christ, how they taught the churches about Christ. And so we have the apostolic teaching here in the completed word of God. We're so blessed to have that. And so now what began with Peter and the apostles, right? What began with them, and we'll see that in a few minutes when we look at Acts, now continues on. Christ is continuing to build his church through the apostolic preaching. As the word of God is proclaimed, as the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is building his church. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the end of verse 18, what Jesus says about his church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you see what he's saying? You, upon your role of proclaiming the gospel, I'm going to build my church. It's going to be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who believe in me, and it's going to last. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we heard hear that term gates of hell I know we immediately start thinking about satanic attacks don't we and and that's implied but what it primarily is talking about is death it's talking about death 
In the Old Testament, the gates of Sheol, which was the Hebrew equivalent to what this verse is saying, was an image for death. So scholars agree here in verse 18, Jesus is using a metaphor for death. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am going to build my church and it will never die. I'm going to build my church and it will never be destroyed. Death will not overcome my church. And again, it it implies Satan's attacks because what does Satan try to do? He persecutes Christians. He He kills Christians. He tries to snuff out the church, but he won't be able to. Satan cannot stop Christ from building his church. Satan can persecute Christ's people, but he cannot snatch them away from Christ. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. At the end of that chapter, he says, no one can take them out of my hand. No one can take them out of my father's hand, he says. And so we know that even if, and I shouldn't even say if, even when believers are persecuted to the point of death, they're not snatched out of Christ's care. They're not, they're not taken out of the church. Rather, they're actually ushered into the presence of Christ. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain, Paul said. That's why Hebrews 2 says Jesus has delivered us from bondage to the fear of death. Jesus is building his church and his church will never die. Christ's people will never be destroyed. Even, Even if Satan tries to attack, even if Satan persecutes to the point of death, we'll still be able to be in the declare his glory and be in the presence of his glory. Matter of fact, we'll be ushered into his glory. And so when you think about what is the church, it's the called out ones. Uh, You'll hear me use this phrase sometimes that we are called out to be a display of his glory now. And so now as the people of God here on earth, we are called to be a display of his glory now and for eternity we will be with Christ in glory. And so the church will never be destroyed. Cannot be stopped. And Peter has the privilege of playing a foundational role in Christ building his church as Peter proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 19, Jesus continues to describe Peter's role. And this is another kind of tricky verse, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to do my best here in explaining it. Verse 19, I will give you, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is explaining the role that Peter's going to play. Now what is this picture of keys? Well, the person who has the keys, really, they, they have the, the power to allow entrance into or to exclude entrance into, right? Right? It doesn't mean that Peter's the owner. It's kind of like Peter's the, the, the manager of the property, right? You know, Jesus is the owner, but Peter's the one at the front door, so to speak, with the keys. Now, what is he saying here? Well, by proclaiming the gospel, Peter will open the kingdom to many. And through the proclamation of the gospel, Peter will shut the kingdom against many. Okay, you say that still leaves me with some questions, right? Is this saying that Peter has the power to decide who goes to heaven and who doesn't? No, it's not saying that, okay? 
This is talking about declaring what God has decided. Look again with me at the verse. Let's look at the text together. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those two verbs, shall be bound, shall be loosed. Again, I know I'm talking about Greek a lot today, which I don't normally do. But those are in a unique Greek tense called the future perfect. They're also passive, but that doesn't really matter. But future perfect. And what that means is, what it, <laughs> however the keys are used here on earth, there's already been a sovereign initiative in heaven first. In other words, what he's saying is, whatever you're binding on earth has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you're loosing on earth has already been loosed in heaven. So again, he's talking about Peter's role of in proclaiming the gospel. He's saying, as you proclaim the gospel, those who believe, for them, it, it's like they've been loosed. It's like the doors are being flung open for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God has already done that. God has worked in their hearts, right? For those who reject the gospel, those who refuse to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, it's like they're being bound. It's like the doors of the kingdom are being closed. And we see this play out in the book of Acts. Again, I don't guess we need to turn to all these, but just, you know, you might jot them down to look at later. In Acts 2, as Peter, right after the coming of the, the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 2, the, kind of the first Christian sermon. Peter preaches. 3,000 souls are, are, are saved. That's the loosening. That they're entering into the kingdom, right? We see again another uh, sermon In Acts Acts chapter 3 and 4. Then you get to Acts 5. You have Ananias and Sapphira. You have discipline. What we would call church discipline. That's Peter binding. Right? In Acts 8, you have, again, more preaching, more loosening, opening doors through the preaching of the gospel. But then you also have Simon the magician being bound, or binding happening. He's, he's excluded because of, you know, he didn't believe. He had selfish motives. So as, as Peter and, and then subsequently the other apostles, as they proclaim the gospel, they're, they're declaring how one enters the kingdom. You must believe. You must embrace. And if you don't embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you reject that, then they can declare you're out, you know? By, by authority of God's word, you're out. You're not in the kingdom. And so in that sense, he has the keys. That's what the verse is saying. We'll see this come up again in the other use of the word church in, in Matthew 18 uh, with church discipline. Okay, so we'll... we'll, we'll uh, be talking about this again then. That brings us finally then to verse 20. Then he strictly, Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So it kind of almost feels like it ends on like a, a, you know, kind of a anticlimactic here, right? You know, we've had this great confession. We've had this, this declaration that Jesus, yes, Peter, you are blessed that you understand that and you have a special role to play. 
through you, through you preaching the gospel, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And then, but verse 20, it says, but hey, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. <laughs> In other words, not yet, not yet. Why? Because they didn't understand enough yet. They, by God's grace, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they do not yet understand what kind of Messiah he's come to be. And that's going to become painfully obvious in the very next verses when Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, 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 that'll never happen to you. See, they don't understand how Jesus is going to deliver his people. They're still thinking, conquer the Romans, right? So Jesus says, do not tell anyone that I'm the Christ. We've already seen this potential political fervor want to kick up before. We don't want to start that now. You guys will be proclaiming after I die and rise again and the Holy Spirit comes and, and I'm, the risen Christ is able to open up God's word to them as well. Then they'll understand to proclaim. Okay? So let's wrap all this up. Again, this passage answered the questions, who is Jesus and what is he doing? Well, Jesus is the king. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is Lord and Savior. And what is he doing? He is building his church. And no one can stop him. He is building his church. And evil and death itself cannot stop the church from being built. And so if you are a part of this church, again, praise God. That's by God's grace. And let me just, again, encourage you, live as the people of God. That's what it means to be the church. We're the called out ones. Let us be salt and light, for we are salt and light. Let us be, live as the children of God, for we are children of God. Let us live as the people of God. Let us um, boldly and, and, and winsomely courageously proclaim the gospel knowing that Christ is still building his church and as we sow that seed let us pray let us pray that God will be merciful and open the eyes of those to whom we're we're proclaiming the gospel to and let us always urge people to repent and again I close with that today if you're not a part of God's people then repent turn to Christ embrace him as Lord and Savior that you too may enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. And once again, we, we praise you. We are such a, a blessed people to have your word, to have it um, in a language we can understand and read for ourselves. Lord, we are blessed to, to be able to come together and hear your word taught and proclaimed. So Lord, please... Um, Help us respond with, with humble hearts. Help us um, respond with, with faith to your word. Uh, Lord, uh, for all of us who can call you Lord and Savior, who, who know that you are the King, may, may we continually praise you for your grace and may we live as, as members of your kingdom. May we live in, in joy and confidence. And may we proclaim the good news. Let us be a humble people, we pray. And we praise you that you are continuing to build your church. And may you be pleased to build it 
all around us, even by drawing people to yourself this morning, in the weeks to come. Lord, may we see more evidences of your saving grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's uh, continue to in our worship through singing praises to our great God and Savior.